We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're speaking with built environment professionals involved in architectural education and we're exploring how prospective students, current students and graduates of architecture engage with the learning of architecture. Our guest in this episode is architectural critic, writer and educator Rory Hyde. Rory is an Associate Professor of Architecture, Curatorial Design and Practice at the University of Melbourne. After working in architectural practice, Rory's career has excelled in many areas connected and adjacent to traditional practice. In this interview, Rory shares his thoughts on architecture career pathways, the importance of doing things other than architecture to broaden our experience and understanding of the world, and the place of passion projects in an architect's career, and how some side projects become main projects. I'll now hand over to Nicole Mosquito-Mendez, who is the 2022 National Sonar President based in Queensland. Let's jump in. An architectural education forms a foundation for a career in architecture. It prompts ways of thinking, observing and acting in the world. But what happens when it's over? I'm Nicole Mosquito-Mendez, Sonar National President, and in this episode of Hearing Architecture, we will be talking with Rory Hyde about using an architecture degree as an architect and in some more unconventional ways. Rory is an Associate Professor of Architecture, Curatorial Design and Practice at the University of Melbourne. From 2013 to 2020, he was a Curator of Contemporary Architecture and Urbanism at Victoria and Albert Museum, as well as a Design Advocate for the Mayor of London. He is the author of Future Practice, Conversations from the Edge of Architecture, and co-editor of Architects After Architecture, Alternative Pathways for Practice. Hi, Rory. Thank you for being part of the podcast. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Rory, you've been involved in architectural education for a number of years now. Why are you so passionate about it? Well, education is so important because it's the foundation of what we do. It's where we set out those building blocks of what a discipline is. It's where we can define architecture as it has been and as it will be. And I love the social aspect of teaching design studio. I love having a group of people who are all exploring something. And so that's the other big part of it is the experimental side of it. You know, compared to practice, compared to industry, you know, you can really imagine something new. You can make a proposition. And I talk a lot about when I'm teaching the difference between doing a project, which I would say is, you know, you need to do a project in practice. You need to be competent. You need to be um, efficient, you need to be all of those professional, all of those things. Whereas in school, I teach thesis, I teach final semester of masters. The, a thesis is something else. A thesis is a proposition about the world or about you or about architecture. And it's got that extra thing which takes it from being just something which is very good to something which is, I guess, making a larger comment about where we are and where we're going. That sounds incredible. And I completely agree. Rory, what challenges do you think that a degree in architecture equips students to address? So this is the big, I guess, point that I try to make in all my writings and in the way that I teach and so on, 
is that we treat architecture like it's a very narrow professional degree. You know, this is where you learn to operate within the profession as defined by the Institute of Architects and the Australian Association of Architectural Schools and so on, the registration board to operate within this kind of legal minefield of how to be a professional. But I think that does us a disservice. I think that limits the scope of what architecture is and what it could be. And if we can take one step back and consider it as a cultural project, as a spatial project, as a political project, as a social project, then architecture becomes a totally different, I guess, tool way of operating on the world. And that's, I think, opens up a whole different set of challenges. So instead of the challenges of building buildings, we've got challenges like climate change or challenges of rising floods or wildfires, challenges of social cohesion, challenges of multiculturalism and integration and religious tolerance and all of these, you know, huge span of questions that we face as a society, they all have a spatial aspect, a spatial consequence, a kind of architecture, if you like. And once we can repurpose our skills as designers, and and we're all taught this, you know, it's not just a special type of architect who can do this, but this is sort of, I would say, at the core of of what we do as as a discipline is that we're really good at three things. This is breaking it down. (laughs) Synthesis is the first one, and that means listening, about understanding different sides of a question, about talking to all sorts of different people who are implicated in that challenge, the challenges that I mentioned earlier, about putting them around the table and making sense of all of those different points of view. That's something that we're really good at doing because we have to do it every day in our jobs about listening to the HVAC person, the engineer, the cost consultant, the landscape architect, the urban planner, you know, we're constantly navigating between different forms of knowledge and different ways of looking at a a project. And we can apply those to different types of questions. It's the first thing. The second thing that comes from that is the ability to translate that into a coherent vision. And I would say this is the storytelling aspect of architecture, that we can take all of those conflicts complex and often conflicting viewpoints and see where they they can align or see where we can bring everyone along with us and paint a picture of, okay, if we could imagine these things together, this is where we could go and we can plant a flag up ahead and say, look at what's possible here. So to look outside of the question as it's framed and think of new possibilities. And that's a really rare and important skill that design disciplines have, and architects in in particular, which is about being propositional. So looking beyond the confines of the problem as it's defined and coming up with with something new that's outside of that problem definition. And then the third part, and this is where we're different from, say, artists, is that we have incredible pragmatic skills. So we can also begin to start the process of how you might really build something or how you might plan it or do a budget or do a timeline or get the permissions and permits and convince the city and so on. And that's an incredible set of pragmatic skills about taking things forward and really sorting things out. So, you know, they're the skills that we all have as architects. And I guess what my um, uh, project is about is trying to say, you know, what if we could apply those things to other questions outside of the building, outside of the city. And it's not to say that we should not do them <laughs> for the buildings of the city. We need to do that well as well. We need to do that really well. But 
we have this incredible um, set of skills that we could apply to other types of questions too. How do you think a degree in architecture helps students develop these skills? Yeah, I, I mean, there's obviously the pragmatic things are clear. You know, we're taught about sustainability, we're taught about construction, we're taught about the tools of doing buildings is, you know, we understand what those are. The other things that we're taught, which I think are more kind of ambient or implicit in what we pick up while at school, is things like discussion. I think the studio model is an incredible thing. And again, very few other disciplines do this. So Denise Scott Brown, she says the the studio is architecture's gift to academe. You know, every, all other disciplines should use this as their model of learning. It's a, it's a you know incredibly de- democratic, collaborative, competitive, conceptual, practical space in which we imagine and discuss our projects. So that's a really critical thing. One brief example: I was interviewing a guy called um, Xavier de Castellier who works a lot with the European Space Agency. And he said that they were doing a project together and there's all these scientists and then a couple of architects involved and the scientists didn't know what their value was. And so he wanted to bring everyone together to critique their projects and he set up an architecture-style crit and these scientists who, who are used to just doing you know peer reviews and sending emails to each other and working in their own offices with the doors shut kind of freaked out because they have to be in the same room and they have to speak to each other and they have to critique each other's work. Um, but they found it so valuable. They achieved so much in that short afternoon of a design crit that now they use that on all of their projects. So here's a real example where something from architecture has been crossed the discipline into the space agency as a way of working and a way of, of thinking. So that's another thing that we bring. Yeah, so I, I, look, I think that that's what, how architecture prepares us is, is all of those soft skills around collaboration, critique, thinking outside the problem, asking questions, not just answering them. Wow, that's quite incredible that this studio culture and way of working has gone across multiple disciplines. No, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, the next question I would say is, well, where else could it go? <laughs> you know, what are, the, what are the examples where a studio pinup could help us to solve other types of challenges? And, you know, that's where it gets really exciting about kind of sharing our ways of working and our expertise beyond the building. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where do you think it could go? <laughs> I mean, there's a wonderful book, just another example, which is uh, Hilary Cottom's book called Radical Help, where she applies design strategies to really the whole welfare state. So questions of housing, of health, of retirement, you know, pensions, of education, of prisons, of all sorts of, I guess, what you would call sort of public services and applies this design process to reimagining them for the 21st century rather than this kind of 1940s welfare state model that we've inherited. So, you know, I would say those are all perfect places where we can begin. And then you've got the really challenging ones like, of course, ones I've mentioned, climate change, you know, political intractism, everything, yeah. Wow. Do you have any examples of people who are starting to deal with those problems? Well, here at the university, we've got lots of research labs which, you know, look at various questions from 
you know, transport for better urban design. We look at educational spaces and how they can improve people's, you know, the way people learn. We're looking at informal settlements. And so, you know, this is, I would say, design applied in its broadest sense, design applied to real world problems. And, you know, it's it's not an uncommon thing. Many universities around Australia will be doing that. And I think that partly it's about being braver, you know, as designers, that we're more than just aesthetes. We're more than just shape makers, which is the public perception of what we do. And that actually we can have meaningful impact in these other realms of health, of education, of climate change and so on. I think that's quite an empowering statement to be able to think about architecture as being beyond just buildings and just making things look beautiful. But do you think that that's how architects are perceived by wider society as well? Well, no, (laughs) is the short answer. We're not. And, you know, that's clear. And I think it's our fault in being poor at communicating what value we do. And I wonder why that is, and we could go into that, which is partly around how architects are presented on television, you know, and it's, you know, if you watch grand designs, I always sort of close my eyes, look through my fingers (laughs) when the architect's introduced because you know that they're just setting up a plot line where by the end of the show it will be their fault that everything's gone over budget and over time and it was just because they were pursuing these, you know, details that no, real people don't care about or something. And so, <laughs> so, you know, that's partly the perception is that it's about high, only high-end lifestyle architecture and residential and the other perception I think which is around real estate and it's, you know, that we are on the side, we're the problem, we're the reason for the housing crisis, we're the um, we're in the pockets of developers and we're the ones who are trying to ruin cities. And so, that you know, it's very hard to then turn that around and say, no, no, we actually want to advocate for public goods. We want to advocate for the challenges that you face. We want to help you to solve housing crisis. We're not actually part of the problem. So, so I think that, yeah, those perceptional shifts are important, but we've got a lot of work to do. Do you have any ideas or thoughts about how we could start shifting these perceptions? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd like to do a better version of grand designs, like the real grand designs, which shows architects doing what we do every day, making things easier, not harder, making things cheaper, not more expensive, you know, solving problems without needing to build a whole new building showing a full spatial creativity and, and collaboration and working with people rather than just being sort of stylists or aesthetes. So, yeah, yeah that would be simple, simple thing. Yeah. Without all the drama. Yeah, without all the drama, exactly. But, of course, that would be terrible ratings. So, yeah. <laughs> so the main reason why a lot of people go to university is obviously to get a job. And the same would be said, a lot of people go to study architecture to become architects. Do you think that the skills taught at university generally align with what's expected from the profession? Uh, I mean, the short answer is yes and no. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's really interesting. At the start of this year, I went out and I spoke to a lot of practices about the types of graduates that they're employing the kinds of people that they're looking for, the kinds of questions that they're facing. Um, 
and there seemed to be a bit of a mismatch. Uh, and it's, I think it's typical of many schools, not just Melbourne Uni, but the, these practices, basically they said, we don't need more authors. We don't need more individual shape makers. We've got enough of those. <laughs> In fact, the people who are heading our design teams, they're, you know, they're those people and, and we don't need other people to compete with them. That's almost what they were saying between the lines. So I, I guess the alternative to that is to be a strategist, perhaps, you know, to be somebody who can work out those questions or work out those challenges rather than make another individual response to it. And that's somebody who can work as part of a team, somebody who is open-minded enough to go out and do some research and speak to people rather than just be only comfortable sitting behind their computers. You know, people who can present really well and tell a story. We teach all of these things, but we, in my education, certainly, they were all secondary to design. You know, the, the sense was, if you can design, you will succeed. It's the thing that will set you apart from everyone else and it's the thing that will carry you forward. And my experience in myself and speaking to practice is that that's not necessarily true and that there are all these other skills which make you much more valuable to a team and we ought to be foregrounding in the way that we approach those practices. It's not all about your portfolio. It's about those soft skills and about being able to work with people that is what they're really looking for, yeah. Do you think all of those sort of more softer skills come through naturally in an architectural education or are there things that students should be doing to kind of improve these skills independently? Yeah. I mean, I think that all those softer skills in a way, they come from being, I guess, engaged in the world, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) So, and I think this this goes to a deeper cultural challenge within architecture. You know, there's this sense that you have, in order to succeed, you have to work all night. It's carried through into practice where they bring on loads of interns and everyone's paid nothing. And there's this sort of sacrifice to the cause of greatness that pervades the top tiers of the architecture discipline. And if you're in the office all night, you're not able to be in the street, (laughs) be in the city (laughs) to understand how people live or work or you're not able to volunteer for things. You're not able to help other people. You become quite like insulated from those the place where you that you need to understand which is the city so i think that here at melbourne uni there's loads of student clubs they put on loads of events they they're really active in getting people together and i don't think the architects take them up as much as the other disciplines do and i would say do that do other things as well as architecture and bring it in you know constantly keep that side of your brain humming in the background aware of what's going on out in the world but you know, you're always an architect and you're a citizen and don't forget that you're those two things together. Yeah. yeah, and I think having that understanding would probably of being a citizen would probably make you a better architect ultimately. That's right. And I think, you know, it might also remind you when being an architect is not the best thing to do in this situation. <laughs> you know, you know I, t- I talk a lot about the potential for architecture to solve these grander challenges. And, and we also need to recognise the limits to that too. And being out in the world is one way to, to get closer to that, yeah. When do you think being an architect might not be the best solution to a problem or what should they be instead? There's a sense that 
Well, there was, a, there was a series of conferences, for example, in Amsterdam, and I think they still run, and it's called What Design Can Do, and it's written in capital letters. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, you know, it's also this design can save the world attitude. And, look, I'm with these people 90% of the way. I think that actually if you have a choice between being an artist, aesthete, separate from big challenges and from being somebody who's involved, I'd rather be involved. Um, so, you know, that much is true. But equally, sometimes design isn't going to solve everything. <laughs> we need to be honest with ourselves and recognise those limits. And sometimes we need to get out of the office and uh, protest or we need to look at those other tools for, you know, making change which are not able to be achieved with a pen in our hands. Yeah, we can't, we can't design all, everything. Would you be able to provide some examples of what those tools might look like? Well, I mean, like activism is a really clear one, I think. And somebody here who I work with, Tanya Davidge, is a prominent activist here for um, public space and urban challenges. She, for example, led the campaign against the Apple headquarters to be built in Fed Square, which has seemed to be an important public space in Melbourne. And... You know, that's an example where you're up against architecture. (laughs) She's trying to oppose Foster and Partners' new design for this building and to say, no, this should be a civic function here. It shouldn't have it be a corporate takeover. This is an important civic place. And, you know, drawing on all of her skills and networks in order to build that story and sell that as a public issue uh, and to bring everyone along with that yeah so you know she's out there making posters and doing design but it's more about being visible and being a clear spokesperson for that issue yeah and it still uses all of the skills that an architect would usually utilize well yes if you go back to that list of like synthesis vision and pragmatics you know tanya's using those things but she's not drawing a master plan She's making a plan for engagement and public communication, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how that can translate across multiple things. Yeah, 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 exactly. I guess just coming back to sort of architecture in the traditional sense though, a lot of people go to university to become architects um, or on the pathway to becoming an architect. But when they finish, I guess they're provided the opportunity of being able to work for a variety of different firms doing different work of different sizes of different cultures. How do you think that these skills that we've talked about may differ between the various firms or what do you think the the difference between these various pathways may look like? Yeah, I I mean, the really obvious ones, I think, and, and I found this as a graduate, is in a big firm, you're likely to get a small part of a bigger process right? So you might be the person who's doing the trees in the photoshops, <laughs> let's say, you know, important, critical piece in a much larger sequence of um, stages. Whereas in a small practice, you're likely to be, I guess, across a broad, you know, more stages. So you might be lucky to follow a project through from sketch design, meeting the client right through to seeing its completion. Uh, a couple of years later. Now, there's trade-offs for both, of course. 
in the big practice, you're exposed to bigger projects. You, there's a whole different set of dynamics that are at play that you can watch, but maybe not drive, but you can learn a lot in that situation. And in the smaller practice, you can obviously, I mean, I, I had a great apprenticeship within a small practice, learning everything from you know, client presentations to detailing to going on site and work talking to the builders. And, you know, that I think is, is something which you can take forward and, and take into other scales of projects as well. And then I guess beyond that, the, you know, within those practices, there's there's different skills. Look, this is the main thing I, I think about education is that it's a, it's a place, and I said this at the very beginning, I think, you know, design school is where you go about finding your purpose finding what drives you, finding what kind of a person you are. And I think it's really important to be, you know, put that forward really clearly when you go into a new practice and say, look, I'm the person who is interested in the concept, <laughs> you know, and I want to be working there, there at the start and, and make, coming up with a story. Or I'm the person who wants to work it out for real. So I'm sort of one foot in engineering or in sustainability or in construction or in these technical disciplines which is super critical to these projects. But, like, put me there, please. And you've got other, other roles which are much more about people or engagement or research. And in a way, I've ended up in that world more so, doing books, doing exhibitions, having a public voice about architecture. And then you've got the people who are, I guess, a bit more systemic-minded and they're the ones looking at things like policy or finance or development Gantt charts in timelines and this, I mean, like yourself, Nicole, you know, closer to urban design and closer to construction management and so on. So, you know, that's the great thing about architecture is that there's this, you know, once you start pulling the threads and you realise how many dozens of different ways there are to be an architect and dozens of different ways to specialise. And I think that a school is a place where you ought to start to be conscious about where you want to end up and, and what you're interested in. Yeah, I think it's really quite exciting that coming out from this one somewhat specialised degree, there are so many opportunities that you can go into and explore. Do you think it's difficult to, I guess, jump between these various sub-pathways within architecture or is it kind of pick one and follow it through to the end? No, and you should jump around, especially if you're not sure <laughs> that you're in the right one. You know, I would say that it's... It starts off easy and, you know, when you're more junior, if you're sick of being the construction person, to, like be confident enough to put your hand up and say, I want to do some design. Can you stick, sit me over there with these people? And, you know, that's fine. Once you get more senior, of course, people, a lot more people are depending on you and it becomes much harder to make that type of jump. So in a way you become sort of typecast or solidified as you go on. And for me, you know, having, for example, I went off and worked in a museum, having been in practice for many years, I went and then worked for a museum for eight years. And I feel like that door to practice is now closed. You know, I can't go back now <laughs> without going back to the start in a way. I'm just too far out of it in order to pick things up on day one. So, yeah, but it's, not, it's nothing to be too, I guess, concerned about. You know, but it's always good to ask yourself, you know, is this the part of the process that I'm really interested in? Is this where I want to be? And I find things are, in, uh, once you know about them, they're interesting. 
Which is what's driven me to keep changing spots, I guess, and that's the exciting bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, would you mind sharing your experience of, I guess, leaving practice and going into more curatorial roles and exhibitions in academia? Well, there's two versions of it. One is I did a PhD at RIT. So, in terms of the sort of formal education of becoming a researcher, I was taught that, and you know, I was able to demonstrate that through the through the degree itself. So that opens the door to things like research roles, publishing roles, magazines, you know, other academic positions, and so on. But the other part of it, and I think this has been more important for my pathway, is that I've always had side projects, and at some point, the side project takes over. Right? <laughs> becomes <laughs> the main project. Yeah, it becomes the main project. So while I was working in practice in the Netherlands, I um, curated a small exhibition on the side with friends. We invited people to that and then it got a job in a museum. It's similarly, you know, with the writing, you know, you're doing little articles and then you get invited to do a book. And so one thing, the side project becomes the main thing. Uh, and it leads on to the next thing. So that's the other, I guess, I, I mean, I'm not, yeah, I don't want to give advice. It, it, it's all, it looks clean in, in hindsight, but it's all been chaos to get there. But one of the things is, you know, always keep those passion projects going, even if they're just in in the margins of your workbook, because it's a good way to you know, remember what you're really about. And you don't want those, you don't want these big practices to own you. They don't own, they don't own you. They just, you just give them your part of your time. And I think that's an important division to remember as well, because we as architects have a problem with, <laughs> I guess, going in too deep and giving our whole brains, our whole souls to the, the cause when actually, you know, there's work and there's not work. Yeah, it's good to have that balance. So, Rory, in your books, Future Practice and Architects After Architecture, you explore architecture as a way of acting in the world rather than just designing buildings, as we've discussed. What prompted you to view architecture in this way? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's it's about seeing architecture as not just the private practice. So there's many other ways of doing architecture. And we've mentioned some of them. The public sector would be a good example, working in the local council, in a way, not holding the pen, but shaping bigger questions of policy or whatnot. Being an academic is one, writing books is one, you know, doing exhibitions. So you, you realise that actually the private practice as a, you know, which we normally confuse with the discipline itself, you know, like the private practice is architecture. I came to realise that is no, no, it's just one slice of it and there's this broad horizon of other possibilities, other ways of working and therefore other ways of acting on the world. And I think that, you know, this has been a question I've been wrestling with since I was a student, is the question of legitimacy. So, you know, really, if you're not doing buildings, are you a serious architect? <laughs> you know, are you a real architect? According to the industry definitions, clearly the answer is no. You're not able to call yourself an architect. But I would say that actually, you know, these are all really legitimate ways of operating on the world and making change in real space. So that's where these books, Future Practice, Architects After Architecture, tried to build that legitimacy by saying 
almost just building an index, a catalogue of different ways of working of different people and holding them up and saying, look at how this person is working. Isn't that interesting? Look at how this person is working. Isn't that interesting? Look at what they were able to create. They're not running a practice. They're operating in all these peculiar different ways, but they're still having this really substantial impact on the city and, you know, could architecture learn from that? So there's a broader project then about, I guess, expanding what we consider to be real architecture, in quotes, about what is considered legitimate architecture or real practice. And, I, and I'm constantly trying to stretch those boundaries to be more inclusive and to invite those people back in. So one example is somebody like Miriam Bellard, who studied architecture in New Zealand, and then she went on to be a work in video games. So she, she's the chief envir- environment designer for Rockstar Games, so things like Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption and, you know, these incredible, you know, games with tens of millions of players every day across the world. Wow. And she designs all the environments, right? So all the levels that you're running through, that's, you know, her and her team. And, and of course, there's dozens of other people doing this. With Harriet Harris who I and Roberta Macaccio, who, who I edited the Architects After Architecture with, we invited Miriam to come and speak at Pratt in New York and she said, wow, this is great. I've never been invited to speak at an architecture school before. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is somebody who, I mean, she's the sort of Frank Gehry of the digital world. Like uh, tens of millions of people every day are running around in her buildings, um, but she's never been invited back to speak to an architecture school. So that's for us is a really clear example of expanding the definition of what's legitimate um, and inviting those people back in to say, no, what you do is real, it is meaningful, it is architecture, and, you know, t- tell us, what have you discovered? How, how do you think about design? You know, to get away from the canon that is handed down to us of legitimate ways of working and to say, you know, how else could we do it? What, what, what other ways could we learn from? Yeah, that's really quite incredible to see, like, those skills applied in different ways and then how that can feed back into what architecture is? Yes, exactly. It was a great conversation because, you know, she's bringing her, the skills that she, the skills that she's learned at school around planning and arrangement and composition and materials and so on. And her, I guess, leadership in that practice are saying, yeah, but that doesn't work in a game. You know, that doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, look, at here's this book. You know, so so things from outside of, of architecture, which are, I think, really critical to architecture, things around space, around perception, proportion, experience, material, light, but really pulling those to the front and, you know, making that the whole question rather than a sort of consequence of what we do. Yeah, yeah. that's really quite incredible. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Rory, for your time and for sharing your experiences and perspectives of thinking about architecture in a much broader sense than we may typically otherwise throughout university. It was great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Nicole. 
This has been Season 3 of Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our guest in this episode, Rory Hyde from the University of Melbourne. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast and for sharing your thoughts on architecture careers and taking us through how alternative pathways can still be legitimate within the profession. This is also the final episode of Season 3 of the podcast. It's been so wonderful putting together these 52 episodes with students, graduates and architects in the early stages of their careers in architecture. It was also amazing to hear from all the incredible built environment professionals and architects that made up this season from across Australia and a few joining us from around the world. We're really looking forward to putting together season four in 2023. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. If you'd like to hear from some more amazing architects, you can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. Hearing Architecture is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team for Season 3 was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. The Sonar production team was Nicole Mosquito-Mendez, based in Queensland, and the Imagine production team was Jamila Jahangiri and Sally Sue from New South Wales, Myron Montero, Genevieve Vu, Sam McQueenie, Rohana Fullerton, Callum Senyov and Bridie O'Toole from Queensland, Chris Morley, Renata Gabara and Hannah Broughton from South Australia, Abby Hibbard from Tasmania, Ryan Barut and Eileen Chu from Western Australia, Mark Pillar from the Northern Territory, Kalina Sparks from Newcastle, Katina Vlandis, Casey Henderson and Christian Leonis from the Australian Capital Territory, and my amazing team, Hilary Duff, Kimberly Huey and Max Legal-White, based in Victoria. Most of this season was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions, with additional editing by Hannah Broughton and Kimberly Huey. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.